Um, this morning, I'm, uh, we're going to go over something I'm trying to work through my own self. Um, I'm trying to understand this idea of having a gospel identity. I'm trying to understand the idea of aligning my priorities with God's priorities and the gospel and so forth. I've got this statement we'll reiterate a little later in the sermon, but oftentimes the gospel priorities and the human heart are not in the same kind of wavelength. Would you agree with me? Uh, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus Christ himself, his love for the church, his desires for you are not oftentimes the same as our desires for ourselves. And uh, we have a way of thinking and a mindset that, hey, we were dead in trespasses and sin. Now that we've been saved by grace through faith, right? Now we have a spirit inside of us living, but oftentimes even then, and maybe even especially then, we still don't have the same priorities that Jesus would have for us. So we've got a bit of an uphill climb this morning, and I, I, I really do mean that. And I'm going to have to ask you to buckle in with me. I'll try to speak slower uh, this hour. Forgive me. Um, I'm going to try to bring you to a place where you allow the Lord, allow the gospel to rewrite some of your priorities. And that's not an easy thing to do. And it's not an easy ask for me to make this morning. Hey, you've lived 55 years of your whole life thinking this way. Hey, at the end of this service, I want you to think completely different, right? Uh, that's, that's kind of an uphill climb. Would you agree? And uh, so pray for me, if you would, as we embark on this idea um, of advancing the gospel. In fact, every month, we're going to focus on a different area uh, of our life or our family's life that we should be advancing. Now, the theme for the year is advance, and the general theme is advance to the church. And I forgot about it until like 1058 that we should have said advance the gospel. So, Brother Hunter, can we make that happen before next Sunday? That's my fault. It should say advance the gospel. In the month of February, we're going to be leaning into that idea. There'll be other months where we'll do something different. One of the months, we're going to talk about advancing personally and how God will position you or advance you in a particular uh, area, maybe a field or work. And the reason he does that is for his sake, for his glory. And so we'll talk about advancing personally. Uh, I think it's during the month of September, we're going to focus on advancing spiritually and revival. Uh, next month, during the month of March, we're getting ready to go to Zambia. We're going to talk about advancing globally. Uh, we'll talk about advancing family during the year. And so each different month, we're going to pick a different topic. And I truly believe the reason we can do that is there's not any, there's not any area in your life, if you could just kind of do that, there's not a single area you'd land on your life and mine that God doesn't desire for us to advance in. That God designed our life not just to have life, but to have life more abundantly. In fact, we spent a whole year where abundance was our theme for the year. And if you if you can remember, oftentimes, I don't even remember what I preached last week, but if you can remember what I preached four years ago, abundant means having enough and to spare. And God's desire for us is that we would go forward, that we would live abundant lives, that we could kind of press in uh, to uh, uncharted territories as we're going to look at over the course of the year. Uh, and not by mistake, it really isn't, we're going to start the idea of advancing with the gospel. Last week, or last month, I should say, we really just introduced the idea of advancing. Now, each month through the rest of the year, we're going to lean on a particular idea of advancing, starting in February with advancing the gospel. Now, shameless plug for tonight. Tonight is necessary. You got to be here, okay? And uh, if you had to pick a service to come to this morning or tonight, since you're already here, I'm going to say you should have come tonight. So come tonight, okay? You need to be here. We're going to lean into the idea of everyday evangelism. And we prayed and we fought in the office over what to call it. And we finally came to this idea of every single day evangelism. 
Because I really do believe it's God's desire. Not that we would just knock on doors once a week, but that we would be Christians and soul winners and prioritize our lives according to the gospel. The gospel comes with all these priorities built in and God's designed for us as Christians that we would adopt those and not just on Saturday or on Tuesday night or you know whatever day you may go out. And I think that's a biblical thing to go out and compel them to come in. But the fact of the matter is evangelism is so much more than one dimension of expression, right? Door knocking. Evangelism, really, we've seen, and we demonstrated this a couple of weeks ago, um, and maybe we'll do it just real quick. The idea is that we were all reached some one of three ways. We were either reached cold turkey, someone knocked on our door and brought us the gospel, a random person that you never met gave you the gospel. Some of us were reached that way. Some of us were reached because, you know, the Holy Spirit was just drawing us. We drove by the church, decided to go in, and we got saved. But the vast majority, like 95% of us, were reached with the gospel because someone who knew us and loved us and cared about us brought us to Jesus. In fact, I, I did that same, uh, we did that as a, as a survey here in the church a couple months ago. I did that same survey in Lompoc when I was, I was gone, I think two weeks ago. And, uh, and only two people raised their hand for anything but relationships. Every other person in that church had been reached because somebody brought them the gospel. And so again, I'm all for the expression of, of, of evangelism, whereby we go out and talk to people we've never met. I really think that's biblical. Uh, we should go into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, perfect strangers, bringing them the gospel. But I oftentimes think what's missed in the Christian life is the everyday evangelism the real life person to person that you know, that relationship evangelism. And I'm very excited for what I believe God is doing and going to do, developing that idea in our church that we would become just prioritized soul winners, evangelists, people looking for those opportunities, as we said, looking, uh, taking opportunities when they present itself and making them when they're not there. I think that ought to be our motto. And so everyday soul conscious people is the priority of scripture, but I'm excited to, to see what God is doing. I've been hearing testimonies from our church family about, man, pastor, I got to talk to this person at my work and man, I've been praying for this lady and we finally connected again. And man, we're going to go out to lunch and man, we got this, you know, particular engagement that's coming up. That's so exciting. But can I just, I want to, I want to work through this with you and I hope you don't judge me. I'm a person just like you. We just read in Ecclesiastes chapter seven, there is no righteous man that doeth good and sinneth not. So I'm going to be very human to you. And if you know me, you already know this. So if you're a visitor and you're like, oh, I thought every pastor was been perfect. Well, give it a couple minutes, hang around for like three weeks. You'll figure it out. Okay. But I'm not perfect. And in fact, this is an area of my own life, everyday evangelism that I am really trying to find a proper balance in. Um, and one of the reasons, and we talked about this before, I'm not around a lot of lost people on a day-to-day -day basis. Most of my coworkers are saved. We're still working on Brother Josh. But most of the people that I work with on an everyday basis, they're, they're saved people. So for me, I have to be really intentional about trying to force myself to create relationships with lost people because the place I work is all saved people. The, uh, the church I go to, I think you're mostly saved people. Um, and, and that like, that sums up my life. <laughs> okay. Um, and so I have to be really intentional. I've, tr I've been trying to it. I think you've been along this journey with me. We've talked about it a bit here, you know, trying to my neighbors and so forth. But one of the things I have to tell you, and I've told some of you this recently, I am so bad at small talk. Is there anybody like that with me? No, like two of you, all of you are introverts. And Brother Magno very clearly pointed out, I'm not an introvert, but I'm so bad at small talk. Like, I actually stopped going to Dutch Bros because they won't stop talking to me, okay? You know what I'm talking about? Those people, like, lean out the window, and they're like, hey, so what are you doing tomorrow? And I'm like, not coming here. I don't like small talk. 
I used to think I was introverted. I'm not. You know me. If I know you, it's a lot easier. But small talk, like I die inside just a little bit. And so in order to create relationships with lost people, I have to get over that. Okay? I'm not scared to talk to lost people. The problem is I only know how to talk to them as a soul winner. Does that, does that make sense? Like I'm over there. My wife's pointed this out. I'm over there talking to my neighbor and I'm like, amen, praise the Lord, sir. My wife's like, you are so unnatural. <laughs> I don't know any other way to do it. I've been in gospel ministry full-time 13 plus years, right? I've been saved for 23 of those years. So I'm trying to rewire my brain. Please pray for me. I have faithfully knocked doors nearly every year of my, every week of my life for 23 years. And I intend to continue to do that. But what I've discovered in my own life, and this, I got to be careful how I say this. And really, you've got to be more careful how you interpret this. The problem is I've also been mostly a, a separationist my whole life. Okay. And I want to be real careful again, how you interpret this. Now I say this, I believe separation is important for sake of holiness. I believe as a teenager, you got to have good friends and right friends around you. I believe as a young adult, you got to have good friends and right friends around you. But I think there's also an imbalance that might even may, may have, I've spent most of my life kind of out of balance in this area is that you become so isolated. You have no relationships with lost people. And, and you live in a bubble and, that, and you become no good for anybody. Right. And I've talked to you about that. God is just wrenching my heart to try to find a balance in that in, over the last few years, right? It becomes more difficult when you have kids in this situation. You know, it's not like, well, I'm going to send them to the bar to go hang out with people. Like, no, that's not what you're supposed to do. But like, you could also get to the place where you don't even know how to talk to lost people about anything but the gospel. And then the only thing you can talk to them about is the gospel and their fences go up and you never had that opportunity to build a relationship and to disarm them. And to show them love before you express to them love. And again, we got to be careful with all of that. But I think about the Apostle Paul. He'd go into a city and, man, he'd go to that, you know, that, that riverside. And, man, he'd talk to the ladies. He'd give them the gospel and a church would be planted. I want to be like that because there's lost people everywhere you look who, if we could, engage. And if we could show love and disarm and build relationships with. And not just try to sell them a vacuum and then, whoopsie ya but actually engage in their lives and care about them and know who they are. We could show them the light of Jesus Christ in very effective methods. And we're hearing some of that. There was maybe going to be a baptism this morning. Brother Ronnie got to lead a student to the Lord at the college. That, that took a year to do. That, that's, that's, that's what we ought to be striving for. Again, one-dimensional expression of the gospel is outdoor knocking, and I'm all for that. But there are so many other days and hours of our week where we might be missing opportunities or not creating opportunities, and they're all over. I've been looking at them more, trying to at least in my own life, seeing the lost people at the, the checkout stands. You know, there's a place that, you know, that, that store that you go to, like you, you do your regular grocery shopping with all the other like poor people at Walmart. That's where I try to shop, right? I'm not trying to spend a bunch of money. I'm not trying to go to like Sprouts everything I need. But then there's that, like, for us, it's Vons. And Vons is so expensive, but, like, it's next to our house. So we, we go to Vons, and we're like, hey, we're just going to buy three things, okay? And it's $75, you know what I'm talking about? You're like, I should have drove to Walmart. It would have been half the price. I'd have been there for four hours, but it would have been half the price. But I still see those same checkers every morning. If I'm stopping by on the way back from the gym, and I just got to grab, you know, you know, toast or bread or whatever, I see those same ladies. And I want to develop that relationship. Well, but I'm terrible at small talk. But I got to get over that. I got to rewrite my mind. I got to let the gospel rewrite and restructure. I got to look at those people in a different way. They're all over my life and they're all over your life as well. People that you work with. And I'm not saying, well, you have a bigger responsibility. No, you have, you have just as big a responsibility as I do. I'm just really awkward. So I got to really get out of the box and try to find them. But they're all over your life too. You work with them. 
You go to school with them. You stand next to them at the soccer field while their kids are playing soccer with yours. We just need to see them like Jesus did, a sheep having no shepherd. And not just thinking, well, I'll be a soul winner on Saturday. You know, I'll be a soul winner on the Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock. You ought to be a soul winner at some of those times as well, not, not advocating for the opposite. I'm saying that's one dimension of the multifaceted approach to the gospel of every day. We have been strategically, and I really want us to grasp this. I'm fighting it in my own heart to try to get it uh, appropriated into my everyday living. Everything we are is strategically staged by God for his purpose. And that's absolutely true. Look at that with fresh eyes this morning. Your your life is a staging area. Think about it like an aircraft carrier. This is, I don't know, there's probably better illustrations. But an aircraft carrier, they'll move that aircraft carrier to a specific region in the world. Why? So they can stage resources for an offensive or a defensive. That staging area needs to be there so that other things that might happen in the future can happen and you're not flying from across the you know, transatlantic or whatever. Uh, and your life is a staging area. Every possession you hold, God put there so you could use for him. Every position you've been given, every, every job position, every, you know, maybe position in your community or, or maybe, maybe civilly, all of those positions he gave you and staged you for his kingdom's purpose. Think about it. Everything in creation is for the glory of God. The stars declare his, his power. Well, so does our finances and so does our, our reactions and so do our relationships. Everything in creation is pointing toward the redeemer and creator. Your life and your relationships are exactly the same. And we need to see that truth. Um, I can testify, and you probably can too, that rewiring your thinking on this is not super easy. Um, it's hard. And I'll give you some examples. It's hard to see someone as a soul who you know is the flaky employee at your work. You know what I'm talking about? Listen, I have never met Raphael. Do we have any Raphaels in the room? Okay. Are you really? Perfect. It fits great. Um, <laughs> I have never met Raphael in my life, but growing up in my house, I heard about Raphael all the time. Raphael was the guy who wouldn't do the overtime. Raphael was the guy who called. So it was like my birthday, 10 years old. My dad's like, I got to leave. Raphael called in sick. I'm going to work today. So I don't know who Raphael is, but I know he was the flaky employee at GTEC when I was growing up. And that's really hard if you're a Christian to see somebody as a sheep having no shepherd when you know their life and, and whatnot. You see what I'm saying? There's a rewiring that has to happen in our mind in these relationships. It's hard to see someone as redeemable when they are just a thorn in your side, maybe a family member or a frustrating neighbor, it's hard to extend grace when you never receive grace. But Jesus has given us so many principles about praying for them that despitefully use you and turning the other cheek. Why? For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven and it's advancing. It's hard to see someone who's a family member as a lost sheep who needs Jesus. It's a lot easier to see them as your, you know, cousin or Tia or all these different things. It's so much easier to see them as you've always seen them. And that's what I mean by the idea of rewriting the way you think. The gospel has a different set of priorities that it wants to impose on your life. But in order to do that, you've got to kind of jettison your priorities. You've got to see things in different ways. And it's hard. And this is so true. This is just practical. Uh, it's hard to be kingdom minded when your feet are still so obviously planted here on this soil. You know what I mean? I think you know what I mean. It's hard to be heavenly minded when your feet are here, right? When you've got, you know, bills to pay and oh, I got to get to work early and I got to go this time. I got these priorities. And I got all this stuff going on and I got real people and real relationships and things get sticky and things can get ugly. And I got all these things I got to do. It's hard to think kingdom when you're currently living here. 
And, and there's no escaping that and, well, until you die or the rapture. But So I'm not advocating for escaping it. I'm just advocating for realizing it and recognizing it. And here's the good news. While that is hard to do, while rewriting your mind to kingdom mindset and gospel priorities, while that is hard to do, the good news is that the gospel of Jesus isn't just powerful to save, it's powerful to change. It has great power to restructure and rewrite your mind, your value systems and your way of thinking. In fact, the greatest example, maybe not the greatest example. I've been using a lot of superlatives lately. Forgive me for that. A great example. Anybody notice that? Okay, relax. You always do that. No, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I have. I told my wife that the other day. I said, I've used the word like, this is the best chapter. This is the best book. I'm just pumped, okay? I'm just excited. So forgive me. One of the best examples of this idea of restructuring your mind and re- your thinking is actually the Apostle Paul himself. Um, this is a man, and we're going to go to his own testimony about where God rewrote and restructured his mind in Philippians 3. Um, as a lost person, you think about the Apostle Paul, as a lost person, he not only, other, not only saw other lost people with a loveless, pharisaical heart, right? He would look at the Jews who were in his religious system, and he would look down on them as all other Pharisees did. Uh, they, would, they, would, they would, you know, push them down and suppress them and oppress them. He looked at lost people with a loveless mind. He also looked at Christianity in a very loveless light. Uh, this is a man who didn't think the way God did. This is a man who didn't think the way Jesus or the gospel would have had him. He was a proud man, very settled in his ways of thinking, very settled in his ways of living, unrelentingly so, and very convincingly so, to the point that he would oppress the church. We'll see that in just a second. And yet the same light, think about this. This is where the gospel hope comes in. The same light that blinded him on the road to Damascus shined brightly in his heart and changed him. So it's not just, the gospel's not just powerful to save, and boy, is it powerful to save. It's also powerful to change us. And this gospel caused him to completely reevaluate the way that he looked at not only himself, but at Jesus and at Christians and at lost people. This is a man who very much lived for himself and lived for his ego and his status and his you know, accomplishments, who absolutely threw that all away to win Christ. This is the verses we're going to go to. This, this really is the whole message that I'm leaning after this morning, that the gospel has, has to change me if we are going to advance the gospel. And this is, I, I don't want us to lose this in, the, in all the thoughts and whatnot, but if we are going to advance the gospel as a church, it has to advance in me first. It has to have its will and way. It has to push everything out of my priority list and everything out of my, what I think I should be and how I think I should live. And it ought to be able to just plow through our life uh, like that, that, you know, that ice-breaking vessel. It ought to plow through the areas of our heart and say, nope, this is all wrong, Casey. This is not how you should live toward lost people. This is not how you should live in this way. You ought not be isolated to yourself. It ought to plow through even the deeply held positions that we may have inherited or grown up with or had for a long time. We ought to let the gospel just plow through and rewrite our life and our values, and our priorities, which is exactly what happens with the Apostle Paul, who becomes one of the greatest evangelizers of the, of the Bible. So let's look in Philippians chapter 3, verse number 1. Oh, he's doing a great job. Philippians 3, 1 says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things unto you, to me, is indeed, or to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of, would you read the last word? Concision. Now, concision is the Jews. Concision is Paul's old crowd. Concision is who Paul was. Paul was a believer that in order to be justified, you had to be circumcised, the concision. In order to be justified, you had to obey the law. And Paul now, all these years later, is writing to a group of Christians, and he says, hey, 
beware of people like I used to be. And then he's about to embark on his testimony of how he used to be. So let's keep reading. It says in verse 3, For we, notice how he's different now, are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. That's Paul's current standing. That's how he looks at the world now. But notice how he used to look at the world. Look at verse 4. He says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. And boy, did he. Just listen to his self-incriminating testimony. He says, if any man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. He says this in verse 4. Hey, if anybody in the concision, in that group of Judaizers, in that group of people who tried to bring all believers, including Christians, including non-Jews, into this observance of the law, he says, if anybody in that whole group of people could say like, Hey, I, I nailed it. Paul says, I'm the poster child. I'm more. Notice what he has to brag about. Notice his trophy shelf. And that's important. We'll use that illustration a couple times. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of Hebrews as touching the law, a Pharisee. This is, this is a profound list of accomplishments. He starts out by saying, hey, I know my tribal lineage. And there was a lot of Jews who didn't, especially with the northern tribes being decimated and removed and just the southern two tribes. And he says, hey, I want you to know that my family, we tracked our lineage. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a devout Hebrew, which is important. Some kind of side context. There were what were known as Hellenistic Jews. Hellenistic Jews were basically just Jews who adopted a Grecian culture. They just lived like everybody around them, but they had their faith, right? And there, there, there are sometimes that people do that even in Christianity where, yeah, I'm a professing Christian, but I live just like everybody else. Well, he says, nope, I stayed away from all the pollution. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, I held the highest of offices or one of the highest of offices. I was an actual Pharisee, a doctor of the law. You had to be elected to that position by the Jewish people. So he says, listen, if anybody's got something to brag about, I was circumcised the right day. Everything from my childbirth to my career was dedicated to being a Jew. Look at verse number six. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. <laughs> and I don't know if you know, some of you might be visiting with us this morning, and you think, well, the Apostle Paul, he's that guy with that big halo, right? Never did anything wrong. Paul tried to destroy the church. When he was Saul of Tarsus, he set out with more zeal than anybody. These lazy Pharisees back in Jerusalem, they don't want to shut it down. They just talk. I'm going to Damascus to cut the head off the serpent. It's reaching the borders, and I'm going to go shut it off right there. He says, according to zeal, I persecuted the church. He committed his entire adult life to trying to single-handedly destroy the work of Jesus, the man who wrote two-thirds of the books of the New Testament. Keep reaching. Keep reading. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. What you're seeing is Paul's old priorities. Touching the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. That's what he said. In every way I knew how to obey the law, I tried. This was not Paul's persona. This is Paul's person. This was his life, his mission. This was the man who in some respects had blood on his hands. He would go into the churches and hail them off to prison. And certainly some of them were beaten or executed. This man had done so many things against the church. This is who he was. And he was proud of it. If anybody had more to brag about in the, in the concision, any of those guys feel like, hey, they were great Jews. I was better. I did more than them. I knew my tribe. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. But take to heart the testimony, what God does to him. The gospel changes him and rewires his thinking. Look at verse number seven. This is what it's all about. Look at verse seven. But what things were gained to me, would you read the rest of the verse? Those I counted loss for Christ. 
He says, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for, in exchange, for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. So not only did the gospel save this sinner, listen, it changed this sinner. You see that? It not only rescued Paul from his destruction, but it rewrote Paul's priorities. It rewrote his life's destination, not just his eternal destination, but the way he walked in this world, the way he loved people, the way he saw people. It completely redrafted his person and realigned him with the gospel priorities and the priorities of Jesus. So what does that mean to us before we pray? That means there's hope for us too. That means that the person who might struggle with seeing someone in the light of Jesus, if Paul can change through the gospel, man, the gospel can change me. If I'm a little backwards and I don't know how to start that conversation at work, how am I supposed to do this? If the gospel can change the apostle Paul, a wicked, injurious man, the chiefest of sinners, as he calls himself, then the gospel has power to change our life as well. The gospel is the hammer upon which the rock breaks. Your life can't break the gospel. It will change you if you allow it to come and rewire and rewrite your heart and life. So we're in a moment, we're going to pray. In just a second, actually, we're going to pray. And then we're going to go back into our text, and we're going to learn three things. that, that This happened to Paul. Man, this can happen to us, too. We need to pay attention and let the gospel reshape our mindset. Let's pray. Father, I love you, and I'm so grateful to be up here this morning to be able to speak to your church family. I don't feel worthy of it. I, I certainly don't. I, I know that you've qualified me for it. So based on that and that alone, Lord, I'm going to press forward in this service. But I pray that your spirit would do the work. I pray, God, that we would learn. I pray that we would be willing to acknowledge our shortcomings, that, uh, man, Lord, we're, we all have our own backwards things. We, we all have our own insecurities and insufficiencies, and we're good at this, but terrible at that. Lord, help us, God, to be well-rounded. Help us to allow the gospel to change us, and that's really what we're looking at here. The gospel didn't just change Paul in terms of salvation. It changed the way he thought. And so, Lord, let us do that as well. Allow the gospel to do a work in our hearts today. And, Lord, if someone's not saved here, please, Lord, let it, let it bring about the conversion of their soul. But, Father, for those who are redeemed, who have been saved and have trusted in the blood of Jesus, that, God, today that gospel would do a new work in us, a continued work in us, and we would open up the doors of our hearts that we've previously held closed. And uh, that we would maybe examine some areas of our weakness that we ought to be able to, to open up and let your grace be sufficient in. And so, Lord, bless us and guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we started with the statement. Now it's in my notes, so we'll reiterate it. The gospel of Jesus oftentimes has a completely different set of priorities than our human heart naturally adopts. Okay? You see where I'm going with that? That here's Jesus... His redemption plan from the garden to now has always been to bring all mankind back to him. He chose Abraham for that exact reason, to bless all nations, bring all men back to himself. And so that is the plan, the priority of Jesus, and all the other priorities that are attached to global evangelism and souls being saved and uh, creation being redeemed back to himself and, and all of that you'll find across the scripture, our human heart doesn't naturally adopt those things. Our priorities are far baser, right? We want comfort, you know? want some luxury, throw some luxury in there. Not going to mind that, right? We want surplus, right? We want, we want peace in our relationships, right? And then the gospel comes into our life and it begins to unseat all of that, right? There goes our luxury. <laughs> there goes the peace in that relationship, right? And we oftentimes don't want to adopt Jesus priorities or the gospel priorities to our own mind. Uh, and and it, that's, the, the, the hard part is we need to. 
If the gospel can save us, it can also change us. When we got salvation, we might have gotten more than we realized, right? And that's a blessing. I didn't realize all that God was going to do in me when he saved me, right? I think I might have been a little scared, (laughs) to be honest with you. As a lost person, if I knew, all right, hey, Casey, 12-year-old, I just want you to know before you get saved, um, in about six months from now, God's going to call you to preach, and eventually you're going to pastor in Bakersfield. I think I might have been like, oh, can can we wait on that? We got more than we realized when we got saved. That's life-changing power, not just destiny-changing power. And so listen, he not only wanted to redeem us, but he set out to change us, to redraft our humanity, to bring us back into the image of Jesus, to dissolve our old man, and listen, to clear our trophy shelf, to clear the things we held as important and valuable, and to change us in more than just where we were going at the end of life, but where we're going in our life, to align our hearts to his priorities. And so here's where I'm going. If the gospel, I said this already, is going to advance through us, It has to advance in us. It has to change in us. It has to be able to rewrite like that plowing ship through our priorities. It has to be able to restructure. And so we're going to go back in our text and look at a couple of ways that that the gospel did that in the Apostle Paul's life. And that isn't a far jump to realize that the same thing can happen in our own lives. So we're going to look back at verse number one. But first thing we notice is the gospel causes a keen awareness of the dangers of the person you used to be. Think about that. When I got saved, maybe not right away, but after a little while, and Paul's been saved for a decade or more at this point. Um, oh, definitely a decade or more, maybe two decades or more at this point. He's been on, on uh, missions trips so far. Um, when, when the Apostle Paul got saved, maybe he didn't realize right away, but at the writing of this text, notice how Paul totally gets the person he used to be. Look at verse number one. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things uh, to you. To me, indeed, it is not grievous, but for you, it is unsafe. What's the first word of verse number two? Okay, beware. Let's think about that word. You ever come up to a fence and it has the sign? What's the sign? Beware of, yeah, beware of dogs. Now, unless you're a total nut job, you're probably not going to open the gate and be like, I wonder what kind of dog they got, right? You're not hopping the fence or like trying to peek through a hole. Beware means like, oh, yep, not going to touch it. There's probably something I don't want. So look what he says. Beware of dogs. Now, in this particular context, it means unruly and dangerous men. Then he says, beware of evil workers. Those are men who work wickedness in both mind and action. And then look what he says. He's talking about his old ways. Beware of the concision. Listen, the fact of the matter is, the gospel shows me who I was is not something I want to open the gate and go back to. It's a beware sign. And so when it comes to us restructuring our mind and rewriting our thinking, when we look at who we used to be before the gospel, That's the starting point to say, oh man, everything I was was wrong. So then why do we now, after 10 years of being saved, still hold to some of the things we held to then? Why do our priorities and our trophy shelf still match some of the priorities and trophy shelves of our old ways? And Paul comes out this gate saying, listen, the man I used to be, you need to stay away from him. Hey, uh, uh, the, the, the church in Philippi, if you ever meet anybody that is of the concision, and then he goes on to explain how he was of the concision and better at it than anybody else, he says, beware of that old man. And I wonder if we would be willing to look at how we were 10 years ago, 15 years ago, whenever we were not saved before we came to Christ. How close, yeah, a year ago, how close is your life now to what it was then? Are we like, yeah, I had it right then, that's why I kept it this way now. And Paul's going to go on to say, Everything I was and everything I thought was wrong. And he's saying, beware of that. And so for you and I, as we kind of move into the second thought, there's so many Christians that, that who, who, who look behind the fence and say, man, I want to go back to that. I, that's how I ought to think, and that's a priority I ought to have. You know, when I was lost, I didn't care about anybody else. Okay, I'm still that way. 
That ought not be the case. We ought to realize at the very beginning of it, the way you used to be was wrong. The way you used to look at family members was wrong. The way you used to compete against coworkers, dog eat dog, I'm going to get over top of them. That was wrong. That is not conducive to the gospel. That does not carry the message of Jesus forward. So if who you were and who you are are still entirely the same person, there ought to be some concern. Because Paul posts the fence on the, the sign on the fence and says, beware of who I used to be. But notice secondly, not only does the gospel show us how dangerous our flesh was, I really like this one. The gospel even rewrites the definition of what was good about us. So Paul's like, yep, the concision. Woo, the worst of me was bad. But then he goes on to explain the best of me was bad. You catch that? Remember the trophy shelf Paul went through? Let's look at it again. This is on the top shelf. Every Jew would want to be this. Though I might have also confidence, or that I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any man thinketh himself, or thinketh that he hath whereof he must, might trust in the flesh, he says, I'm more. Circumcised the eighth day. Trophy of the stock of Israel. Trophy of the tribe of Benjamin. Man, that's the best I could be. A Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm, I'm there as touching the law. Top shelf, Pharisee, concerning zeal. As a Jew, persecuting the church, top shelf. Touching the righteousness, uh, uh, which is in the law, blameless. He's got this trophy uh, shelf of all these great things. So at first he says, the worst of me was bad. But even the best of me was bad. Things I'd accomplished and prioritized and possessed. And we all have a trophy rack. We had one before we got saved. I wonder how different it is now. That's the point I'm going after, right? We had a trophy rack when we got saved. You got saved in as an adult, man. You were trying to climb the top. You were trying to get to the top. You're trying to have more in your retirement. You're trying to, you know, uh, have a better house or a better possession or all these things. And you might have accomplished them better than anybody else. They're deemed high value. But notice what verse number seven says. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. You know how Paul looks at his trophy rack now? It's just stuff. It's just a plastic trophy. All those prizes and all that praise and all that lineage and all that zeal, all those observances, they have no value to me now. So again, it begs the question. On the other side of the fence, it says beware of who I used to be. We open the fence, man, the trophy shelf on that side of the fence, how much does it match the trophy value system of our current life? Are we as Christians adopting the value system of Jesus? Or are we still chasing after all these things before Christ we were chasing after? That's an important observation. We need to get to the place ourselves where we realize, what good is all that? Paul said, I counted all at loss. What, is, what good is all the stuff and all the power and all the possessions and all the praise? What good is it if it does nothing for the gospel of Jesus? What good is the office and the car and the ranks? Uh, if nothing eternal comes of all the trophy shell, what good is it? Paul said, it is a total loss. He actually uses a far more pungent word, which we'll see in a minute. But I've seen so many people spend their entire lives climbing the ladder and get the end of their life and realize it's leaning on the wrong building. I climbed all the way to the top, and it never satisfied me. Paul had spent 40-plus years of his life to become a Pharisee. That's when they became Pharisees, striving for that position reaching, going to synagogue, no doubt as a young man thinking, I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a leader of the people. I want to be a Pharisee. Nobody gets there on accident. It's extremely rigorous to become a Pharisee of the the children of Israel. And he made it. He had more religious claims than nearly any of them. 
He was circumcised on the right day, had his tribal lineage down, was blameless as touching the law. Nobody could look at him and say, well, you're not observing this. You mixed your blended cotton with wool. You violated the law. Paul says anywhere you could look, I was zealous, more zealous than those in Jerusalem to persecute the church. I was all about it. And then he says it was not only lost, it was dung. Refuse. Putrid, valueless, purposeless, entirely redeemable. And that, what he's talking about is, that was the good stuff. The bad stuff was bad. Good stuff wasn't much better. The best my flesh had to offer, all the earthly logic, all the earthly effort was a waste of 40 plus years of living. And it's tough to take a step back at your life now that you've been saved a year ago, 10 years ago, and say, man, that was all a waste. Now, again, it's redeemable because Jesus used the testimony of the Apostle Paul in powerful ways. But the fact of the matter is, we got to realize that not only is the worst of us bad, the best of us before Christ is bad. All those priorities are incorrect. And that brings us to this, this last thought. Here's where, where the rewrite of his life and priorities happens. You see, the gospel doesn't just come into our lives and, and blow things up like, ah, so bad. But it actually begins to put brand new trophies in. It begins to put brand new uh, uh, priorities in. So it gives us a new aim, a new way of thinking. And that's found in verse number eight, point number three. The gospel gives me a brand new set of priorities in thinking. Look at verse number eight. So all this is done. It's all, wa- all lost, all awash. Yea, doubtless, I count those things but lost for. So in exchange for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, of whom I have suffered the loss of all things. It all got blown up. Nothing on the other side of the fence had any value. And I do count them as dung that I might win Christ. So Paul says, you can have it all if I can have you. You can take away all the trophies and all the things I live for and all the things I prioritize if you'll just give me the knowledge of Jesus that I might win him, that I might gain him, that I might please him. I long to stand before him. And it was this priority, this changing of priorities, I should say, that Paul lived this way, and he saw Jesus and said, oh man, I will forsake all of that and follow you. It is this changing of priorities that thrust this man into the globe to travel on journeys, to reach people, to start churches, to write the gospel, because his life adopted the priorities of heaven. And if the gospel is going to go out like it did through Paul, if it's going to go out through Faith Baptist Church, through your individual life, through my individual, somewhat backwards life at times, it's going to have to change me first so that it can come out. So let me ask you a series of questions before we pray and go home. How much of your life lived today, presently, is lived for the sake of the gospel? How much time does it occupy in your life? Oh, preacher, I'm here. I, you know, I came to service you know, this morning. Maybe you were here at Sunday school here at 11. Okay, good, cool, awesome, great, great. That is definitely a priority of Jesus, right? The scripture is very clear about not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. What about tomorrow? And I'm in the same boat with you. I am not picking on you. I'm picking on me. My wife and I have lengthy conversations. Me and the staff, we have lengthy conversations about this. I, I desire to grow in this area, and I hope you do too. How much of your everyday living is centered around gospel priorities, the kingdom of heaven? Question number two, how much of your income is committed to gospel ministry. Oh, he's talking about giving. Yeah, Jesus talked about it a lot, okay? Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And I understand it's a tough economic time for every single one of us. I get it. It's totally normal. But we, were, we had a trophy shelf and a set of priorities before Christ. That's on the other side of the fence. All that's counted as loss. 
Now I realize I'm supposed to lay up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves do not break through and steal. How much of your current structure is spent on different frivolous things versus reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ? I would say even more importantly, how much of your thinking revolves around the will of God in your life? Lord, I want you to have your will in this situation. Lord, I want your will to be done in this relationship. God, I want your will to be done in this parenting decision or this parenting reaction. How much of the will of heaven affects your will here on earth? How committed are you to gospel priorities in the kingdom of heaven coming through your life? Because one thing I learned from watching the gospel unfold in the life of the apostle Paul is that if, it, if the gospel is given the chance to rewrite your everything, it will. If you will give way to that ice-breaking gospel message, it will restructure everything. So then what might be stopping it in your life? Are you perhaps not bewaring of the person you used to be? You're good with it? Are you perhaps still celebrating your accomplishments and accolades and your trophies? You're still all about those? Or have you allowed Jesus and the gospel to say, you know, that plastic trophy is not much. You know, all that money and all that time you're saving up for something... It's not all that valuable because only what's done for Christ will last. The fact of the matter is, it's going to be lost anyway. It's going to be done anyway. At the end of all of this, none of our stuff, none of our collections, none of our possessions will ever make it into eternity. But the souls of man and the influence for the kingdom of heaven will. Let's pray.